0: Welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We know you're going to like our special guest today, Lark Eshelman, who is a specialist with children. The work that she does is very touching, and we know that she's making a difference in children's lives. And we hope that you'll hear that too when you listen to her story, when you listen to the work that she does today. We want to congratulate Lark, we didn't talk about this in the, in the interview, but she's recently published and put together a coloring book called Color Me Closer, Coloring in Pairs, so that children can color together and cooperate with one another to create something of beauty. We believe that that's the work that she's doing, creating beauty for children so that they know they're safe, so they know that they are loved, so that they can know that they they have a home. We talk about this today, that we all need to know that we have a home, that a place where we we can just feel comfortable and know that we matter. So enjoy this interview, and uh, we're really glad again that you've joined us today.
1: Dr. Lark Eshelman came to her career in child healing through her own childhood family experiences by parenting her own children, through her work as a children's librarian, elementary school teacher, school psychologist, and then dramatically through her overseas work with children traumatized in the war in the Balkans after their wars of independence from 1991 to 1995. We gotta make sure we come back to that. Lark is an author, a therapist, and an educator whose expertise is working with children and teens who have experienced early emotional trauma, attachment difficulties, neglect, and abuse. Dr. Eshelman founded the Institute for Children and Families, which for 10 years was a leading treatment center for providing extraordinarily successful and highly innovative treatment for children and families in the underserved population of adoption, foster care, and childhood trauma. She served on the board of ATTACH Association for the Treatment and Training in the Attachment of Children, and has taught in Eastern Europe, Asia, and most recently in India, where she has been asked to share her findings and extensive knowledge in the areas of attachment, disruptions, adoption, and healing. Dr. Ashman speaks with us today from her home in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania. We welcome her to the Someone to Tell To podcast. It's so good to have you join us today. How are you doing?
2: Uh, fine. But you know what, Tom, when you <laughs> when you say all that, it sure makes me feel old. It's like, oh, my gosh, I did all that. that yeah. But yeah. I've been busy. One correction I just want to make. I'm not sure. Um, Please do. Maybe I sent it wrong. Is that I was a school principal. I have not been a school teacher. And I want to make that um, distinction because I truly believe it's a whole lot easier to be a principal than a teacher. I can, I cannot imagine Being a teacher, it's hard work, and I give uh, kudos to everybody who's out there teaching now and trying to teach remotely with uh, everything that's going on with, um, with the COVID virus.
1: Yes, my wife and I are desperately trying to teach our four kids the past couple weeks. We have had, we've always appreciated teachers, but we appreciate them even more, more so right now, so. So let's start here. What has inspired you to do your healing work with children?
2: Uh, What what I've been learning over the years and didn't know in the beginning was that my own childhood experience included um, an emotional separation from my mom. She was, what I didn't understand at the time and have come to understand over the years is that she was highly traumatized herself because of experiences that she had. And um, to great extent, because of that, it was difficult for her to parent me. Um, I didn't know what it was that was wrong. I didn't really fully understand. Most of us don't, you know. If something's wrong when we're kids, we don't have a frame of reference. We don't understand. Maybe everybody doesn't have the same experience. But regardless, uh, I have come to understand that um, I inherited what we call an attachment disorder. And um, until I began to understand it, passed it along to my oldest son when he was born until I figured it out. And he and I have been working through that since. But it was, um, it's, he, he t- my son tells me, mom, I'm the reason that you went into this work. And to a great extent, he's right. Um, not because there's anything wrong with him, but because I didn't understand. And so now the more I know, better we can um, make things happen. Good things.
0: Before we go any further, we'd like you to define the term trauma or traumatized and tell our listeners and us what that means to you and um, how uh, just how it impacts people's lives. Mm -hmm.
2: You know, Michael, um, I've... (laughs) Since we knew that we were going to be talking together today, I've been trying to figure out the easiest way to explain this. And I realized that um, I work with um, neuropsychologists who might explain trauma from the brain perspective and behavioral psychologists who might explain it from the behavior aspect of how behaviors change or um, Cognitive therapists who would say, well, it has to do with how you think about life and yourself and all those things are true. But I don't think that's what is most helpful for people who are wondering what the heck is it. Um, In order to explain it, I happen to be an attachment theorist and practitioner, meaning I believe most strongly in um, Our ability to live our lives in a healthy way through healthy relationships. When you're little and you have a problem, which all of us do, uh, just say, I don't know, falling off your bike, if you're lucky enough to have a bike, and if you're lucky enough to have somebody who will help you learn how to ride it. If you fall and that person that you have come to trust makes fun of you for falling, you might feel shame and fear of getting back on the bike. If the person who's with you says, oh, you have a boo-boo, let's take care of it. You learn that when you have a problem, someone that you trust is there to help you get better. When you fall and no one is there to help you, you might learn, uh, a phrase that I like to use is, we live what we learn. Well, if what you learn when you're young is that someone is not there to help you, then you learn, I guess I better figure this out for myself. Well, that's a setup for what is trauma because trauma can, can essentially be anything. Trauma can be something as small as breaking a toy when you're young or as huge as losing the love of your life when you're an infant or child. Um, <clears throat> all of them can have a huge impact. Anything that happens to us can have a huge impact And so it comes down to whether we have learned when we're young that there are people there to help us or whether we feel we have to do it ourselves because we can't do it ourselves. So then we're stuck. And then whatever happened becomes a trauma. So I'm not sure that that's the best way to explain it. And I would love some some more questioning from you about how to define it for the audience. You know your audience much better than I.
1: I was just thinking one of the things that we're in the midst of right now is actually working on our third or fourth book. And it's particularly focusing on grief. And we talked actually in previous episodes about grief and that it's so much more encompassing than simply the loss of a loved one. I think people immediately assume grief well, we lost a loved one, but there's loss of identity. There's loss of a job. There's loss of Right now, we're in the midst of social isolation, the, the loss of community. And I think probably trauma is a lot like that, that there are, there's a lot more trauma that we all experience in life than, than simply maybe emotional or sexual trauma, I think is probably what a lot of people immediately think of. Is that accurate?
2: It's so much bigger than people understand. It's like taking the foundation of a house, and before, it's, before the cement is set, you start cracking it. And then anything that goes on top is fragile because the foundation is not strong. Anyone and everyone is going to lose someone in their life, but how do we deal with it? Do we have the resources to deal with it? And those resources include both internal resources. Have we been fed? Have we been given the um, assurances, the, the resilience is the word that really is what we're talking about, the building blocks? Uh, being able to deal with trauma, or have we not been given them? And then how do you, how do, how do you, it's like going into a job, you get hired for a new job, and someone gives you um, a list of what to do in your new job, but not the tools to do them with. Well, life is kind of like that. We're given um, experiences every day to which we're asked to respond. Do we have the tools or not? And if we don't, then we are, um, then we're in the midst of trauma, meaning we don't know what to do and we don't know how to do it. And so we adapt um, very, we adopt very maladaptive ways of dealing with it. So um, we were talking before we started about um, a certain performer who was on stage and she had a bad experience and couldn't handle it. Well, how do we handle How do we handle tough experiences? Either we figure it out because we know how to do it and so we have to calm ourselves down and use our best brain to figure it out, or we ask for help. But we learn both of those ways of dealing with things in our early years. And so they're available to us or not. So anything can be a trauma if we don't know how to deal with it. But of course we have the more traditional lists of things that are highly traumatizing. Um, And you named a few of them, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Um, We now have the list that the ACE study, the adverse childhood experience study has given us. And that's the list of 10 things that potentially make us more vulnerable when we're older to psychological, trauma, emotional trauma, and physical trauma, and okay, Michael, I'm using the word without answering your question. Trauma means it's the interruption of what, we would, what would have been normal or healthy. We're interrupting it. We can't get past it. So in this case, when we're talking about the adverse childhood experience study, what, they're, what they first focused on was, what are the medical implications of this? We're only now beginning to talk about that and learn about the medical implications of early um, trauma, of early childhood trauma.
0: Uh, Yeah, wow, you're um, raising a number of uh, for me a number (laughs) of thoughts, and and first of all, I I think one to to me it seems like one of the and 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 Tom, I, I think you would agree with this that in the people we listen to, the people we hear from all of whom, just virtually all of whom are experience, have experienced or are experiencing some kind of trauma. And that's why they come to us. That's why they, they need to, especially why they need to be heard. And whether it is physical or emotional, sexual, whatever, it seems like for so, so many of them that what they've lost and what's been interrupted is trust that trust that someone who you thought loved you is always going to love you well. And sometimes they don't. And you begin to, it, it begins, it seems like it begins to erode our trust. Someone instead, yeah, made fun of you, laughed at you because you fell off your bike as opposed to helping you bind up your wounds. Um, you know, someone who you, you you reveal something to someone that you know that maybe is a bit vulnerable and they laugh at you instead of saying, Wow, I'm really sorry you had to go through that or I did make sense why you reacted that way, as opposed to saying, I can't believe you did that. Yeah. And, you well, know, those or kinds of
2: share your confidence with someone else. Exactly.
0: And that they don't keep the confidence. Yeah. Exactly. So right. it, I, th- I think that we have, uh, you know, heard so many stories of trust interrupted and that once it's interrupted, it is so hard, it seems to get it back. We don't feel safe anymore. We don't feel comfortable. We don't feel as if we're unconditionally loved, but that we, we are now judged. We are now labeled. And, and uh, so anyway, that, as you're describing it, that's what's coming up. That's one of the things that's really, really exploding in my mind, that the trust that is interrupted.
2: It's all about trust. It is all about uh, trust. Yeah. When we're infants, we can't trust ourselves. We don't really know what that is, nor do we have the capability of, um, of doing for ourselves. So we have to trust someone else. And we're born, I believe, with the the propensity, the um, we're ready to trust someone. And that person is usually mother, it doesn't have to be, but um, for the sake of our conversation, let's just say mom um, is the person that we're, and in fact, we're hardwired. This is the neurological thing. We're hardwired to trust. So when we're hungry, we cry and mom feeds us. When we're scared, we cry and mom cuddles us. When we, um, whatever is going on that we express a need and that need is met. What happens is it brings us back to that sense of safety that you're talking about, Michael. So we're at a a place of safety that becomes homeostasis that becomes ground zero. Um, when I'm talking to kids, I'll say to them, "Did you ever play tag outside? What was home base?" Well, home base was the big oak tree in the backyard, or home base was whatever you know, dad's car. Well, how'd you feel when you got to home base? Oh, I I made it. I didn't get tagged, and I made it to home base. That's the place we always want to bring a baby back to is that they feel safe. Okay, I feel safe because someone is taking care of my needs. That means I learn to trust that my needs will be taken care of. That sets us up for all kinds of beautiful things. We're important enough in the world that someone will take care of us when we have needs. We apparently know how to express our needs because somebody is meeting them. So that gives us confidence that we can say what we need, um, and that we're that we're a child of the universe, and that we we belong here. Um, and our neuro- neurology, which is different for every infant when they're born, it's every, every child has their own neurology. And for some kids, their nervous systems are a little more sensitive than others. Um, so for some of those kids, it's a little more difficult to get back to home base. But as long as they get back there to that safe place on a regular basis, not every single time, but on a regular basis, they learn to trust they learn that that hardwiring in the brain that says we need to be able to trust yeah that's that's going to happen well fabulous because that means as we grow up when we fall down from the bike we trust that somebody's going to be there to help us we don't go into a full blown panic we wait for that person to help us or we ask that person to help us or we know that that moment that person can't help us but that's okay, they will the next time. It just sets us up to be able to come back to a place of safety on a regular basis. It's when we can't get back there that trauma happens. So Tom, you were talking about grief. We will all lose someone. We will all lose people we love. And actually, Michael, that goes with what you're saying too, that um, we'll all experience these losses of people we don't want to let go of. We don't want them to leave us, but, for whatever reason they must or they do um can we survive it can we survive all the things that will change in our life including what you were outlining tom the many many aspects of our life that change so i've been thinking about this one lately in terms of covid there will be an explosion of mental health disorders that happen um, that are happening and will continue to happen through this pandemic. One of the ones that I haven't heard people talk about yet, and I'm concerned about what this is going to do to us as a people, as humanity, um, at least in this country, is that many of us think of ourselves as helpers, people who can do something to make something better. Lots of us are stuck. We're not sure what we can do. Or many people will get to the other side of this and say, why didn't I do more? Why didn't I volunteer more, give more to the food bank, share my stimulus check? I don't know, whatever it is. And we're going to change the way we think about ourselves, not necessarily for the better. We'll grieve the loss of who we thought we were. We thought we were helpers. It's going to be very difficult for a lot of people to get through
1: this. We've had a lot of people who've asked us recently, has our work increased, our workload increased as a result of the virus? Have you had a lot of folks reaching out for, for support? And we've honestly said it, our work has relatively remained consi- consistent. We haven't had, been inundated with contacts of people reaching out for listening support. And we're actually not surprised by that. And the more we put the pieces together, I think we realize that, like you said, in the next couple of months or years is when some of this might really start to affect people's mental health. Um, You know, we've heard people talk about that maybe the single most important aspect of mental health is feeling safe, which is what you're talking about. And it just raises this question for me of what, what does it look like for us to create safety for others. And how do we do that?
2: Well, that's the question of the ages, isn't it? Um because I agree with you, I believe that safety is the it's the groundwork for any moving forward. If if fear fear-based behaviors, which is what most of mental health deals with on a regular basis, fear-based behaviors. Um In order to get past that, you have to teach or reteach a brain to become, to feel safe, to go back to home base. And a lot of kids either have never experienced that because their needs were never met when they were a child or were not met, um, you know, on a consistent basis so that they never could feel both feet on the ground or I'm sitting in a safe place. It's a lot of what mindfulness can help some kids learn or relearn, Um, which is what I was watching in Croatia after the war, was working with orphans in the orphanages there. And um, many, if not most of the kids in the orphanages there had been in intact families where they felt loved, they felt safe, they felt good, things were okay. Then the war hit and for four long years, they were in the middle of turmoil and terror and then they went to a new place to live and this was all different their life was totally turned around but inside their minds and inside their hearts they knew what it felt like to be safe so when we went over and this was a rotary international project um, that was started by the Lancaster the Rotary Club of Lancaster um, when we went there with a program that helped pair them, each child with uh, an adult, and in this case, they were often young adults, they were college students um, or others from the community. So each child was paired with an adult and we went through activities together as a group, which would help them remember what it felt like to feel safe. What was that feeling when you felt safe in the presence of another person? a safe person in a safe place. You could watch the little lights coming back on. It was a very beautiful thing to see. They asked us to work with the kids that they called um, unadoptable because their behaviors were so bad. Well, they were fear-based behaviors. They were behaviors that just sprung out of their little bodies saying, I, I, I don't know what's safe anymore. I thought I did. I thought I was safe. I thought the world was safe. And now it's turned upside down. What, what, what do I do? And so their acting out came out of um, that fear. As they learned that they could return to that place of safety, um their behaviors changed they became much more the the kid they used to be they would never be the same they would always have grief and loss in their life and fear but they could at least go back to that place where they remembered feeling safe and allow themselves over time slowly to open back up to the possibility that they could be safe in the presence of in the arms of in the love of another person, when we went back at the end of the three years that we worked over there was it was, uh, it, was a, it was about a whole about a year over a three year period that we worked in Croatia. Um, at the end of the three years, all the children had been adopted, and um, with one exception, and she was an adorable little girl, but she just couldn't get past it until we worked a little more with her. But um, all the other kids were happily adjusting and adapting. And um, we felt that the program was very successful in that way because it was bringing them back to a place where they felt safe and so could then open up again to trust. It's the the kids I worry about most are the kids who have never experienced it. And for many of our kids in this country, um, there there just are too many instances where kids are born without a person who can be there for them to help them secure that feeling of home base, of being safe, of being cared for, knowing what safety feels like, knowing what emotional trust is. And so their behaviors, their fear-based behaviors are just acting out, looking for that, almost challenging the world saying, fine, you tell me that I'm supposed to be safe, trust, Prove it to me, because I don't know what you're talking about. Imagine how that would feel, to never feel like you could get to home base. It's, it's, it's a problem.
0: We can only imagine that there are many, many, many more children and adults who don't know that feeling, who are going through their lives constantly searching for it, constantly Wanting it, needing it, and never never finding it, never receiving it. And oh gosh, it's just so hard to imagine what that might be like.
2: It's very hard to imagine, and this is a continuum, so I don't want to make this sound like this sounds very dire. We're talking about something really sad right now, and and we want to make sure that we you know that we look at the whole picture. So this is a continuum. Attachment, trust, health, mental health is a continuum. So, some children have had the loss of that initial trust, but have found it somewhere else, maybe in a different form. So, um, one of the adages in the uh, in the mental health field is that it takes one person. And you know, I don't want to minimize this whole tragedy of the amount of trauma that we experience um, in our country anyway. But um, I will say that there are lots of kids walking around. Who had one person, a teacher, a neighbor, a relative, um, somehow they connected with someone when they were young, who was there for them. So it may not be the full spectrum of, gosh, I'm a really important person in the universe, but it might be, you know, I'm okay. I, 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 if I look hard enough, I can find somebody who can help me, or I'm, I'm worth the time and attention it takes. Um, for someone to teach me the ropes or whatever it is. This is all, this whole idea of trust has to do with fitting in the world, being resilient enough that we can function in the world no matter what the world throws at us. Everybody has their own place where it's just too much. So how much resilience is built in gives us the opportunity then to respond to the experiences that life throws at us. And sometimes we just get to the end, it's too much. But um, fascinating work, it's it's heartrending work, but it's also very exciting work. We're coming to the point now where we're understanding a lot better what our brains do and how we can help them, how we can help kids experience home-free. I used to love playing tag when I was a kid, I didn't know why. Um, but it's because you get to that safe place and you know you don't have to run anymore you can just take a minute to say i'm here i'm safe
1: i think being safe is uh, as you mentioned is is like being home and and i guess almost a question would be what what does it mean to be at home um you know home is we would imagine a place where we can truly be our our, our authentic selves and be loved and valued and for who we, who we are, who we've been created to be, nothing more, nothing less.
2: And that comes from someone I, I don't know you well yet, but I know enough to know that your home is like that. I worry very much right now about the kids who have to stay home because of our stay home um, restrictions for whom's home is a place of terror. And I don't use that word lightly. I, I, I've worked with too many, way too many kids. I don't know, how graphic do we want to get on this, on, on your podcast? Because some people may not ever want to hear this, but um, I'm thinking of a little girl who came in as a teenager. She was in foster care. Her foster mom brought her into treatment. And as I read through her history, which was put together uh, by over years, by the system, the children and youth system. This is the child who had been, um, for lack of a better word, pimped by her parents to make money in order to buy drugs. Well, how valued does she feel in her home? She was a commodity. So as long as she could make money for her family to buy drugs, her parents to buy drugs, I suppose she had a sense of, I'm a valuable person, but, what she had to trade for that it's inconceivable for me to imagine what that must have been like or the child who whenever their parents are upset i worked with a a man who was adopting a child who when he was taken from his home by the police the police had been given the report they came to the home to take the child and they couldn't find the child and they asked the parents where he was and parents said well he's in his box and they asked what the box was and it was a coffin type box i saw it i was shuddered when i saw it uh he was locked in there at night he was 4 he was locked in there at night because he he supposedly had adhd and he just was too he made too much noise at night and the parents were upset by the noise, the commotion he was making. So at night they would lock him in his box. When the police made their report, they noted that the inside of the lid of the box was was just scratch marks where he was trying to get out. So clearly this was not a one-time deal. Took a whole lot to help that child get to the point where he felt like he could ever in any way count on being safe. He knew he could be safe with a person in the moment, but to count on that, to believe that that person wouldn't turn on him later and do something when he got, when his behaviors got to be bad. Yeah. It's that's trauma. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We um, listened to, um, a woman who I imagine when we listened to her was beyond young adulthood, but was struggling terribly uh, with failed relationships and you know broken all kinds of brokenness and she told us that when she was a girl at home with her parents um, that when she would get punished her father would um lock her in their basement which was not a finished basement <laughs> we, you know we don't think probably it, it may have been a dirt floor you know kind of a you know just a scary dungeon-like place to begin with and then he would throw snakes down the steps at her mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just unimaginable
2: it's it's inconceivable isn't it
0: yeah, yeah. and 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 we could oh my goodness uh, no wonder this woman now you know again not 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 a, even a young adult anymore was still st- was so struggling so much with her own self esteem with her self worth with feelings of guilt and shame and uh, oh gosh more More complications than we could name or even even identify, and you look at that this is what happened to her when she was when she was young, and this was her home this was literally her home and th- and that's what happened to her in her home yeah
1: yeah, and it's just like how does somebody ever recover from that um, this past weekend, my wife and I Sarah we watched. If you've heard of the PBS documentary called "The Windermere Children," have you ever heard about that story?
2: I've and heard about it. A, I haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. It's
1: really powerful, but it's about I think maybe a thousand children who survived the Holocaust, oh, and they yes. end up in a home.
2: I did see it
1: in the UK. I yes, I did. Yeah, and if you remember, in there, there's that just this one haunting scene where they are just having these night terrors, and they they kind of scroll. The whole camp, and they're, all of these children are in bunks, and, and in each one of these these buildings, you know, the, these children are just crying out because of these night terrors that they're having. And then, you know, the story definitely takes a more positive turn as they connect with each other in these this common human experience that they both that they've all gone through together, and so you know, I was just watching that and I was thinking in light of our conversation today, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that, about shared common experience and how that can help children, especially children who have gone through traumatic experiences.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a major topic. It's a, that was a beautiful show, by the way, really well done. But did you find, Wanting to scream at the television at one point when the kids first got off the bus. Oh yeah. And they were speaking to them in a foreign language. And I thought, no, no, yeah. somebody speak to them in their own language. So at least they feel talk about common, some kind of common connection. So at least they there feel, were a
1: lot of a lot of things in the yeah, first half of that episode we would have that done I, differently. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, just really trying to put a band-aid on the situation or like we've said this often in our work of people just trying to help you move on quickly and not allowing you just to go through the process. And, you know, here they are, these adults who are meaning well-meaning people. Absolutely. You know, really wanting to make a difference, but what they were doing is just totally unhelpful. And um, anyways, for those who have not seen the documentary, it's, it's definitely worth checking out, especially in light of our interview right here. Tell people where, where can, where can people find it? I'm pretty sure you can find it on PBS
2: I think on Netflix I think I I found it on Netflix yeah
1: Netflix as well
2: I think so Windermere and I don't remember how to spell it but
1: yes (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) maybe we could look it up but we'll put it on the resource section
1: but I'd love to just talk about yeah that that the redemptive aspect of of relationships and the friendships that were for forged at Windermere
2: so you know how in the context in which I've been thinking about that lately is um, nursing homes. This is kind of maybe a funny way to segue, but I think it speaks to the same thing. So I have um, a friend who was older and she needed to go into um, an extended care facility. And she her one of her children lived out of state and took the responsibility to have mom her mom Stay in a nursing home near her. I realized watching how difficult that was for my friend to make this transition, not so much to the nursing home but to a place where she didn't know anyone, was because there was nothing common in their experience other than, yes, we're all in a new place. Yes, we all have problems with whatever we have problems with as um, as elderly people who need help, but rather, When my friend wanted to talk about her daughter's wedding, for example, no one knew the place where her daughter got married. She could say, oh, you know, remember um, Twin Ponds? We went to Twin Ponds for the wedding. And people would look at her like, we don't know what you're talking about. Or um, you know, when we grew up, the swimming pool down the road. No, nobody knew what that was. There is a comfort in sharing experiences so that we feel felt. It's a great expression about that's being that's very common right now in um, in child mental health and in attachment work especially and now it's beginning to be understood in trauma work that you need to feel felt. Someone needs to understand you from the inside out per experience. So There's no one who's going to have, maybe if I were a twin and was never separated from my twin, um, you know, we would both have the same experiences. Otherwise, we don't have all the same experiences ever with anyone. But the more we have them together, even if we don't see them exactly the same, I know that that person at least knows what I'm talking about. I think it's one of the reasons that we so often ask, you know what I'm talking about? Because there's a need to feel felt. When we do, it's just what we've been talking about this whole time is the connection gets stronger, the feeling of safety emerges, maybe strengthens, strengthens, that there's someone who's going to understand us. Well, yes, going back to your child who was locked in the basement, what she learned was, I'm not worth time. Nobody." Nobody cares enough to really take care of me. The building blocks for resilience for her were not positive ones. Who understands that? When you go out to, I mean, you'd you'd have to be in a pretty special support group before you could get a bunch of people sitting around saying, oh, man, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I had something very similar. So how is someone going to empathize with you? Um, How is someone... This is the other part of it is how can someone hold your hand and walk you out of the darkness if they don't know what the darkness is for you? I hope that makes sense. It's like, "Mm, I'm, I'm scared. I have a problem. I'm crying. I'm asking for help. But who can help me if they don't understand what's wrong? If they don't understand what my experience is? So a common experience is something that is um, comforting, it is hopeful, Um, and it brings people a sense of safety. I'm in the presence of someone who understands me, so there's hope that maybe someone can be with me through this. Has a lot to do with listening, you guys. It's just what you do, has a lot to do with listening.
0: We'd like to take just a moment to thank our premier sponsor for the Someone to Tell It To podcast, the Wonders Found Thrift Shop in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We are so grateful for their support, for their advocacy, for these messages that we share with you today and every day. So thank you. We also want to encourage you, if you are interested in helping to support these podcasts, You can do that yourself too by going to patreon.com and signing up and saying what you would like to do on a regular basis to help someone to tell it to continue these podcasts, to help them grow, and to reach more and more people around the world. You... um... So you talk about common experiences, and it gives us gives us hope that that when we can find people who have experienced some very similar things, it uh, reminds us we're not so totally alone as we often think we are. Which and you know, also contributes to us feeling unsafe because you know we're just so alone. Um, you you also mentioned earlier, and and this struck me too, and brought back uh, you know m- many memories of, of the fact that just sometimes it just takes one person who can express confidence in us express uh, or reassure us of something or give us a who co- gives us a compliment who who tells us you can do this or who can remind us that that we are loved and that we are good and and that's important i, I you know and, I, and and I started to think of you know it's uh, It made me think of some experiences in my own life, and Tom and I have written about an experience with both of us had either in college or in graduate school, where a professor told us, and we we weren't children at that point, but but still young adults, where told us that we each, in essence, have a voice, a voice that has something to say, and encouraged us both. To use our voices, that we are not as that we have more more to say than we probably realize, and that that we have more valuable insights and understandings than we ourselves even know. And you know and I think about that, I think about you know being much younger when 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 I was well somewhat younger when I was in high school, I mean growing up as a kid, being always always I've written about this too some degree the shortest kid the shortest boy in every class i was ever in and and that that gave me some insecurity and inferiority i felt inferior that i wasn't big enough strong enough tough enough whatever the boy was supposed to be and um never felt as if i i had a lot of of great athletic ability And and at some point um Someone encouraged me to 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 to, to uh, join the the track team, the cross country team, uh, be a runner at our school, and 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 I did. And at first, when I started out, I wasn't very good. But as time went on, it I, I discovered that I actually was good, and I could do it. And I and I remember particularly uh, one of my teachers, who came, who uh, had previously been a track coach, but now wasn't doing that anymore, who had come back just to see how the team was doing and 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 talk with me. And you know, and 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 looked at me and said, "Since the last time he would seen me, he said you've put on some muscles. You know, you're starting to, you're starting to, you're you're starting to fill out here. You look, you look, you look really good." And I remember that very vividly, as you know, this this teacher whom I really liked, really looked up to. I loved his classes. He, he was perhaps my favorite teacher in, in in high school. For him to say that to me gave me so much more confidence that you know what i maybe i could do this and maybe i was good enough and and i remember that very much and 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 it really actually did propel me to to be a top runner in, in my school uh, so it's, it's 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 experiences like that yeah. it's just one person let me ask you a question michael
2: You mentioned that you, um, I think the term you used was looked up to that teacher. Would it have meant the same if someone said that to you who you didn't particularly trust or admire?
0: Probably not. I mean, I I think it, it, it carried the weight that it did because I really liked this guy. And I found him to be very... He was also different than other teachers, and in fact had gotten into some trouble uh, with the school because of the way he taught. I loved the way he taught. It was a lot more experiential, not so much based on lecture and stuff that to kids, and adults too, sometimes it's pretty boring but it was very experiential and we did a lot of fun things in class and we talked about things and listened to music. And he was a social studies teacher. And that experience actually propelled me when I went to college, my major was in government and in, and in, you know, a lot of history classes and a lot, it was really a social studies kind of major in, in many ways so that I followed but I, but I thought that he was brave and he would speak out and encourage us to be, you know, he, we lived in a pretty conservative community and he was more progressive and, and I resonated with that. And, 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 again, it caught us in some trouble sometimes. So, so I think it carried a lot of weight to hear from this guy who I thought was speaking the tr- I always felt spoke the truth.
2: Someone you admire and trust was building your resilience was giving you building blocks you were still young enough that they were going into the foundation of your being yeah yeah yeah, so it's astounding what we can do that's right right <clears throat> but it's it's somewhat the same reason that i um, I caution young therapists when they come into the field don't expect that you're going to be spewing pearls of wisdom. Um, to kids, when they walk in, they need to learn to trust you before they're going to listen really to anything you say, um, or if they admire you, like, you know, you, you often see uh, young girls who are going into therapy, and the therapist is young and beautiful, and so they want to believe what this person says. Um, we have a lot of mechanisms that propel us to want to trust people. We learn after a while, well, maybe that's not the most important foundation for trust is that somebody looks like who we wish we could look like or be like, but rather someone that we admire because they resonate with our true beliefs and our self. Uh, you know, what we, what we feel is the foundation for a good life, like your teacher, your history, your social studies teacher. Yeah, it's a fascinating study um, what trust is and how it is in many ways the antidote to trauma. Not that we won't have traumas, we will, we all have them. But do they become traumas which interrupt us to the point that we can't get over them or deal with them? I know that we have talked before about losses and grief and that you are aware that I lost my youngest son when he was 24. I think about him still every day. It's not like I will ever not hold Danny in my daily life or in my heart. Um, how do some of us, and I don't like any of the terms that are out there. I don't like closure, I don't like get over, I don't know what the term is. How do we learn to live with a loss? Well, some of us learn to live with it a little more um, effectively, a little less, I, I don't know, I wanna say a little less painfully, I don't know that that's true, but what I tried to do was to turn his loss around for me to propel me to do more of what I believed he would have done had he been here. He was a tremendously empathetic person, um, very giving, very um, affectionate. Uh, Numbers of people told me at his funeral that they loved that he was so supportive of them. And one young woman came up to me and said, you know, whenever I went to a party in high school, I was very awkward at parties. I didn't like them, but if Danny was there, then I knew I would be okay because I knew he would be friends with me or talk to me, not not allow me to basically not allow me to be alone. So how could I use what the gifts that he gave to, um, to continue his work, his love of life. And that's helped me to move forward in my own life. I had enough strength, thank goodness, that I could do that. And I have an older son, Chris, who has helped me to do that. But um, a lot of people, their building blocks were just not strong enough. And so they live in the grief This is not a condemnation. This is just from my heart to theirs, really. That it's very difficult for some people to ever move past um, the grief. They They can't go there. I'm sad, but I understand it. I don't know. How do we help? You help. You help by giving them a voice, by helping them share that and know that it resonates with some people, that they're not alone, that they are being heard. You help that as much as anyone I know.
1: It's a beautiful. Yeah, thing. I think a big part of it is just that those who are gone are not forgotten. I was thinking even this morning, uh, Michael, I don't know if you had seen on social media, but one of, another dear friend of ours, she too lost a child. Um, a daughter of hers in an unexpected car crash and her sisters along with her mom have started a foundation in her honor and it's just having this massive legacy. I mean, they, they've supported someone to tell to as well on this podcast. Um, they've just been so supportive of our, of our listening work and, and just so many other missions that, that this legacy that was started as a result of, of her, you know, her passing and they've tried to turn it around for good. And I think just like two days ago, she posted on her Facebook page a poem, and I wanted to read it to you and I'd love for you to comment on it. And here's what the poem says. She said, I asked grief how long would he stay? For as many days as you love her, he answered. Then we will be sharing my lifetime together. I said. And the Beautiful. It is, it It is.
0: For a minute.
2: It doesn't go away. We just have to learn to live with it. And so how do we learn to live with it? And that's such an individual thing. And that depends so much on the strength that we were given when we were young And that that we were able to build as we grew older so that we had the resilience to figure out what to do, figure out how to move forward. What a beautiful poem. What a beautiful tribute to grief. Hmm.
1: I think a big part of the way forward, as we've talked about in this episode, is just helping create home for each other.
2: Home base. When's the next time you're going to be playing tag with your kids, Tom? Michael, yeah.
1: Well, we've done old, a lot know. of that, except in the house. <laughs> uh, oh, for the last wow. couple of weeks. Yeah. Hide and well, seek. We've, we've gotten pretty creative.
2: Hide and seek is very yeah. important for children. So if you can hide, they can hide in you. And can we don't
1: see. have that big of a house. I mean, everything's <laughs> all relative, but you know, with four kids, a dog, and Two rabbits. It's it's a it's a full house. So Uh we've had to get extra creative with our hiding spots, but it's been fun.
2: It doesn't make any (laughs) difference whether they are (laughs) hidden somewhere where you can find them or not. I mean it's just the game of it. It's just the being found. It's being found over and over again that reminds them the treasure that they are to you, that you would go anywhere to find them, that you would do anything to bring them home. Home. Yeah.
1: I just, we just love that message that we, we all need to be found.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: So we, we'd love to end today's episode by doing something new um, that we are going to start doing with some of our guests and just a couple rapid fire questions. And we just, the first thing that pops into your head, just oh respond. Oh my
2: gosh.
1: Yeah. All
2: right. I think I need a sip of water.
1: mm Okay. okay so what what's giving you a sense of hope today
2: uh the rain
0: what gives you what's giving you a sense of joy
2: um our talking do you really want to like a one word or do you want to you
1: can uh, it could be simple it could be profound doesn't matter oh
2: well don't count on the
1: (laughs) first thing that comes to your mind joy is
2: talking with both of you and knowing that there are people who may be helped by anything that that i say but certainly by what you do it's very joyful to me
0: we're gonna throw that right back at you same thing thank Mm -hmm.
1: you so what's the show that you've what's the most recent show that you've binged watch
0: oh
2: gosh let's see um i started yellowstone but i can't do it it's too brutal Mm-hmm. Um, so what have I really enjoyed and watched recently? I pull blanks on these things. Um,
1: well, you think we'll both answer. I know for me I just finished the Michael Jordan series.
2: Oh, didn't and, you? And
1: I've never been, you know, huge NBA fan per se. I'm, I like sports but but uh that that series was captivating. It was 10 episodes. You've
2: been sports deprived. I'm just very confused. I
1: have. It's been mm-hmm. hard. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: You've been in withdrawal. Yep. Okay. <laughs>
0: My answer is Shit's Creek.
2: Oh, I've heard so much about that, and I haven't seen
0: it. It's right. hilarious. Okay. And, and I, think, I think needing, uh, <laughs> I've watched a lot of very serious stuff, it. too, and a number of documentaries, and uh, absolutely. But, but within the, la- the last week, I just decided I need to laugh. Just yeah. really, really yeah. need to yeah. escape and yeah. to laugh. Yeah. And that when that's laugh out loud funny.
2: Okay, so, I'm going for that one. So,
0: so it you, um, was
2: Mrs. Maisel, I think was the last one that I saw mm, that I beat, mm-hmm. and it was um it was also a, a lot of haha, but you know, you you probably figured it out. I like to get the psychological stuff going, so
1: <laughs> Some of each. Yeah. I think we're the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So, this one might be a tough one, but it's uh it's a fun one. We we have a a tradition among our, uh, among ourselves, but among our our team members that someone to tell to is that we all choose a word to live by for the year. My word has been solitude. Michael's has been Sabbath. And obviously those words have shifted significantly over the last couple weeks and months. Uh, But nevertheless, they are important to us. We're trying to uh, stay true to who we are and our values. So if you had a word, what might it be for 2020?
2: It would be, uh, it would be space. It would be what's close enough, what's far enough away. How do we change our space? Where are we in our space? Um, I think that's a, I think that's a concept that's going to be very trying for us in 2020. And I know that it's true for me. Where are we in our space? and how is that changing? Interesting idea. One more
1: question, Michael. Do You have one on on your heart you'd like to ask or not?
2: That I would like to ask. Um, Yes, was this what you expected in terms of the discussion today?
0: Well, did you expect? the, the answer is yes. That's for uh, definitively. Yes. Oh, okay. What also, what also I expected, and it's exactly what happened We have this whole list of questions that we had for you. we we actually asked about three of them. That were on, <laughs> that, no, 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 no. This is exactly what the, how we want it to be. Uh, you know, we have these prepared questions just, you know, just in case, but, what happened was, and this is what makes for the very best podcasts in our mind. The, the dis- your answers sparked other questions and took us in other directions, and and but yet yeah, very similar directions to where we might have gone. But we didn't need those prepared questions. That's the point. You you answered so well, and oh, and wow. and we were able to continue to follow up with you without just naturally and organically. And that's our very favorite way to do it. So thanks.
2: It's wonderful to me. I just wanted to back up the camera a little bit to show um, if people are watching rather than seeing that, I mean, listening, that um, my guys are with me all the time. I don't know if you can tell what they are, but it's a family of lions and there's a baby lion in there. And it's a a mother and baby um, monkey. And they stay with me all the time. So um, they were with us today too. And I think they are, I know they are very appreciative also. Now now I'm gonna show my true self, I'm really kind of wacky, you know. But um, there they are just saying, thank you for what you're doing because this is what helps families stay together and what allows parents to give their kids the very best of what they can. As their
1: kids are growing up. Boy, well, applaud we applaud you for you and your work. It's, it's yeah. tremendous, tremendous value to the world.
0: Because we, we've learned through our experience, especially through our experience, that the, the hurts and the losses and the traumas we experience as children, they, stick, they can stick with us if we don't feel as if we have a home. Of safety, a home to come back to, a home to find solace in, and uh, the work that you're doing is extremely valuable and important because you you are you are working with children who need to know that they're loved unconditionally, who need to know that they're safe, who need to know that they do have the, a home that and that they that they they're valued. And so we, uh, Dr. Lark (laughs) Eshelman, we thank you so much for being with us today. And we we want to applaud what you're doing. Your heart, we believe, is very big. And you are also using your own losses, your own traumas, to help inform and to help touch the world and to heal it and uh, we can't tell you how much we value that so thank you very much
2: thank you this is a privilege and a pleasure i feel very humble and very honored so good to be with you it's so good to be with you thanks for what you're doing and allowing me to do it with you
1: there are just certain conversations that we've been a part of the past year and a half since we started the someone to tell you podcast They're just going to stick with us long after the conversation ended and the conversation we had with lark eshelman was was one of those conversations since we first met her a few weeks ago we felt like she is someone we want to spend time with she is affirming she's authentic something we care deeply about she is broken and isn't afraid to admit it she is growing and learning to be the best of who god has created her to be and for all of that and so, so much more, we are deeply, profoundly grateful. Michael and I have seen this, um, this statement that's flo- floated out on social media about introverts. And it says that, yes, I, I am. I'm an introvert. I'm not shy. I'm a noticer. I'm a thinker. I'm an observer. I'm not stuck up. I'm not antisocial. I treasure my solitude. I'm not a fan of small talk. I prefer a few close friends. I'm reserved until I'm not. I appreciate true connection. If we connect, you matter to me. One week after our interview, both of us received a copy of Lark's newest project, a coloring book called Color Me Closer. Her idea was to create a coloring book where two people can color side by side at the same time. I already sent Larka a picture of our twin girls using the book, especially during this time of physical distancing. To learn more about her books, follow her on social media. We hope our conversation evokes something in you. We hope you felt like you were a part of a conversation among a few friends. Thank you for joining with us to end this epidemic of loneliness, one conversation, one connection at a time. As always, if you'd like to help further the movement you can begin by subscribing to the Someone to Tell it To podcast. Share it with others. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can read our blogs through our website, org. And then you can be even more intentional about connecting with those around you. As Paul Tillich once said, the first duty of love is to listen. Let us all love more by listening more. So, Until we listen again.